Welcome to the podcast of First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming and progressive Unitarian Universalist congregation, deeply committed to love and justice. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. So let's get started this morning. Welcome to everyone else who is joining us in this Zoom room. Welcome to those of you watching on our YouTube channel. And hello and welcome to those of you listening to this on the podcast at some later date or watching the YouTube recording at a later date. Really glad you're with us in spirit in this worship service. These are tumultuous and terrifying times, times when nothing is hidden. Everything is on the surface right now, the ugly and the horrific and even the hopeful parts of our country. It is all very visible right now. It is good to be together this morning, to remember that we gather in that spirit of giving and receiving and growing. We gather in that universalist spirit of love and hope. And as a faith community, we practice. We practice welcoming and affirming and protecting the light in each human heart. We practice listening deeply to where love is calling us next. And with humility, courage, and compassion, we act to create a more just world. We do all of these things as a faith community committed to racial justice, to dismantling white supremacy culture and building, building beloved community where the liberation of black and indigenous and people of color is central and really all of our liberation from those systems that harm and oppress us. That is what the beloved community is. So welcome once again to all of you. If you're just joining us, welcome. Really glad you're with us. As has been our practice for nearly a year now, as we gather into this space, we take a moment to center ourselves, to slow down for a moment, and to take a couple of deep and slow and intentional breaths, aware of breathing in, aware of breathing out. And this is one of the ways we settle into this knowledge, this knowing that we are in community. We are centering together. We are arriving into a shared breath with one another. And so I invite you to join me in that practice now as we take three deep inhales and exhales. Morning, everybody. This morning, the title of the story that I'm telling is The Castle with the Three Windows. So there's a king and he lives in a castle that he has never been outside of. And the castle has three main windows through which he can see his kingdom. Now, what the king doesn't know is that these windows have been endowed with certain properties by the people who installed them. So there's a red window. And the red window looks out over a castle in the distance. And the window has uh, the property of making things look bigger than they actually are. It magnifies things. And it also gives them a kind of a rosy tint. Consequently, the people that the king can see through this window 
uh, there's a castle in the distance and those people appear to be really cheerful and powerful and valiant because of the window. There's also a blue window and the blue window doesn't make anything any bigger or any smaller. And it looks out over the city and in the distance, the king can see through this window the citizens, the, the good and obedient citizens, according to his ministers. And when his ministers stand beside him and look out that window, they say to him, now, these people are not as beautiful as the people in the red window who are our our family members. They are the aristocracy of the kingdom. They are the most powerful people in the kingdom and they deserve the best. Now these people in the blue window, your highness, these people are our business people and our merchants. They are good, good citizens, but they are not as beautiful as our people that we see out of the rose red window. They're not as tall and they don't deserve as many rights as us because let's just face it, red is better than blue. And then there's a gray window that the king can see out of. And out of that window, he can see a factory. And surrounded by that factory, there are the homes of the people who work, the laborers of the community. But the gray window makes everything look really small and dirty. And when the king is looking out of that window, his ministers stand around him and they say, oh, your highness, look at how dirty and puny they are. They're like little ants walking around there. They're so, they're so small and dirty and dumb. They, they don't deserve any rights at all. So the king, he's never been outside of his castle. He takes the ministers at their word. He believes what he can see from his windows. Well, one day he's in his office just doing what kings do and there's a fly and the fly is buzzing around and it becomes really, really annoying to the king. And then the fly lands on the king's head and the king looks and he plants and he smacks himself in the head trying to hit the fly. He misses, the fly flies off and it lands on a royal vase. Now this is an artifact of an ancient kingdom from which the king is descendant. It is priceless. And so the king grabs his scepter and he says, I'm gonna get you fly. And he walks over to the fly and he swings at the fly and the fly flies off of the vase, but the king hits the vase and it shatters to pieces. And he thinks, oh no, what have I done? which makes him even more mad. And he looks around to try and find that fly. And there it's landed on his desk on an ink well. And so he takes his scepter and he sneaks over to it and he swats and the fly flies away and he hits the ink and he knocks it over all of the royal papers that he was supposed to sign that day. And it makes him even more mad. Oh. And he looks around, he sees, where is that fly? Ah, it has landed on the royal pooch. And he takes his scepter and he sneaks over to where the royal poodle is laying down in front of the fireplace. And very carefully, he swats at the fly. Of course, the fly flies up just in time, but he hits the poor royal poodle who wakes up with a start and is so angry at the king, which makes the king even more mad. He looks around and he sees, ah, I'm going to get you now. The fly has landed on the gray window. And so he takes his scepter, he sneaks over to the window and he swats at the fly and shatters the window. The fly flies off into the open air and the king stands there angry, fuming when he realizes things don't look exactly the way he thought they would. 
the factory is not all tiny and dirty and disgusting and the people don't look small and weak. They actually look really tall and valiant and courageous. He looks at them and he's like, wow, those people actually look like they have a lot of dignity, which makes him wonder about the other two windows. So he takes his scepter and he smashes the blue window and he looks out and everything is the same size. And he wonders about that red window. So he takes his scepter, he walks over to it and he smashes it. And then he's really just knocked back off his feet when he sees that the castle in the distance that he thought was so glorious and beautiful, the people that he thought were so valiant and strong looking were actually kind of gray. They were actually really kind of skinny and feeble. They, many of them looked weak. And so all of this just made him so confused that he just had to sit down for a second. And overwhelmed, he laid his head down on his desk and he fell asleep. Well, while the king is napping, his ministers come into his office. And when they see that the three windows are broken, they call to the maintenance staff of the castle. They say, quick, quick, come fix these things. And so while the king is asleep, they put the red window back up and the blue window and the gray window just as they were before. Well, the king wakes up and he looks around. He, he jumps up and he's like, oh my goodness, what happened? I can't believe this. But then everything is the way that it was before. And he calls his ministers and he says, he says, uh, I don't know why, how these windows got back here because I broke these windows. And when I looked out, it was different. And the minister said, oh, no, 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 King, you were sleeping. You were sleeping just now. I think what you just had was a terrible dream. And because the ministers had replaced the vase and massaged the pooch and put a new pot of ink on his desk and fresh new papers and everything looked the way that it had been before, the king believed them. And so life just went on in that kingdom the way that it always had. That's the story. So this story belongs to you now. I give it to you and you can do whatever you want with it. If later on you're still thinking about this story, maybe you might wanna talk to people in your family about it. Or if you're around people who haven't heard the story, maybe you wanna tell them the story. But maybe some of the things you wanna think about are who has the power in this story? Who benefits from the king thinking that the world is different than it actually is? And how would you change the ending if you could? How would you make this story turned out, turn out justly so that people are treated fairly and with dignity and everybody has what we call equity in the kingdom? So that's the story of the castle with the three windows. Next, you're gonna hear Gather the Spirit I'll be singing it and I'll be accompanied by Franco Holder. Gather the spirit, harvest the power, our separate fires will Yeah. 
where the president was impeached for a second time, charged with inciting a violent insurrection against the United States government, in a week when new details have emerged that some lawmakers allegedly gave tours on January 5th to insurrectionists, in a week where a dozen Capitol Police officers are under investigation for their possible support and complicity in the insurrection, and in a week where we've learned what we really already knew, and that is that many of those who were in Washington, D.C. last week were on watch lists known as violent white supremacists. During this week, and this weekend particularly, I have been thinking a lot about what Cornell West calls the love warriors. The love warriors that this country has and has known, the love warriors that come out of the bowels, as Cornel West says, that come out of the bowels of the American empire. So I've been thinking a lot about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Bayard Rustin and James Baldwin and Ta-Nehisi Coates and the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi and Patrice Cullors, and so many others, so, so many others, a cloud of witnesses and those alive today, these love warriors who are fighting and working and organizing to dismantle what James Baldwin calls the lie, what he called the lie, the belief at the heart of this country and the founding of this country that white-skinned people matter more than black people and indigenous people and other people of color. Before the United States became the United States in the 1600s, in the early colonies in this, in this land, it wasn't always this way. This narrative had not yet taken root. In fact, it was poor indentured white folks and Native Americans whose land was being stolen and, and who were being killed. And it was enslaved Africans 
who saw that they actually had common cause with one another. And so these groups of people began to build alliances with one another, to love and to partner with one another, to fight back, to rebel against the wealthy land-owning elite who controlled and harmed and murdered and dominated their lives. And it was in this context, hundreds of years ago, that the concept of a racial hierarchy was introduced, introduced by the people in power in order to pull poor white people into alliance with wealthy white landowners. By switching allegiance, the poor white folks received marginal benefits, slightly better living conditions than their counterparts. They essentially had a tiny bit more, more freedom, more possibility, more access, but not much. But that switch, that pivot to say that whiteness is best, is better, is superior, that's the wedge that was put in this fledgling coalition between poor white folks, enslaved Africans, and indigenous people. And that essential narrative saying whiteness is best was set hundreds of years ago and began to take root hundreds of years ago in law, in practice, in culture. In the centuries since, science, the Bible, and outright lies have been used to solidify and build upon this narrative. Outright lies about the character, the emotions, the capacity, the feelings, the intellect of Black and Indigenous and people of color. These lies have been used to reinforce and strengthen this racial hierarchy to justify exploitation and violence against Black and Indigenous and people of color. And so on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, I keep coming back to the I Have a Dream speech that Dr. King delivered on August 28, 1963 at the Lincoln Memorial on one end of the National Mall. As Julica reminded us when she shared part of this story last August in one of our worship services, on that day in 1963, Dr. King hadn't planned to talk about the dream in his speech. Though he had talked about the dream and other speeches around the country on that day on the National Mall addressing hundreds of thousands of people, he had planned to only use the image of a bad check representing the United States failure to deliver on the promise of freedom, the promises of equality, the promises of a true multiracial democracy. But during the speech, he started to improvise as all good preachers will do. And in a moment when he paused, sort of picking up some threads and figuring out the next steps in the speech, the gospel singer, Mahalia Jackson, who was behind him, cried out from behind him, tell them about the dream, Martin. Tell them about the dream. It was, as Clarence Jones, one of Dr. King's advisors said, one of the world's greatest gospel singers shouting out to one of the world's greatest Baptist preachers. And then Dr. King started preaching, not just speaking, but started preaching and weaving together what we now know as this I Have a Dream speech, one of the most recognized speeches around the world. The essential issues he named then, almost 60 years ago, police brutality, voter suppression, gross indifference to the living conditions of Black folks and people of color, those issues are still with us today. What is heartbreaking is the ongoing gap between Dr. King's dream 
and the reality of who we are and where we are as a country. And in the past four years, who we really are has been more honestly revealed. And it is heartbreaking. In his brilliant 2015 book, Between the World and Me, author Ta-Nehisi Coates describes the people who believe they are white, those who have been conditioned into believing that whiteness is superior, that they are superior. Ta-Nehisi Coates calls them the dreamers. In this book, which is really a heartbreaking and poignant letter to his 15-year-old son, Ta-Nehisi Coates plays with the language of the American dream and lifts up the nightmare, in fact, of this dream. The dreamers, as Coates calls them, are oblivious to the power, to the current power they have and the historic power they have held over black people and indigenous people and people of color. He writes in striking language that the dreamers claim again and again, they claim innocence. The dreamers rely on forgetting and denying history. The dreamers create a myth of American exceptionalism and perfectionism and cannot see the violence and the pillaging and the harm that the country has done and is doing. Ta-Nehisi Coates explodes this innocence and ignorance writing, our black bodies built the Capitol and the National Mall. The first shot of the Civil War was fired in South Carolina where our bodies constituted the majority of human bodies in the state. He goes on to say, here is the motive for the Civil War. It is not a secret. Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, declared Mississippi as it left the Union. After the Civil War, American Reunion was built on a comfortable narrative that made enslavement into benevolence. White knights of body snatchers and the mass slaughter of the war into a kind of sport in which one could conclude that both sides conducted their affairs with courage and honor. The lie of the Civil War is the lie of innocence is the dream, says Coates. He goes on to say, historians conjured the dream. Hollywood fortified the dream. The dream was gilded by novels and adventure stories. When questioned, the dreamers respond, racism is over. But the dreamers forget how preferential treatment from the police, from the courts, from schools and businesses, from banks and neighborhood associations, from the United States government, in the form of the GI Bill, as one example, have prioritized and privileged white-skinned people over all others. Ta-Nehisi Coates suggests that the dreamers don't know they're dreaming. And if they have a sense that they're dreaming, they don't wanna wake up because that would mean change. That would mean sharing resources and giving up power and reimagining everything that was built on violence. It would mean reimagining where their natural alliances rest, and it wouldn't be with wealthy white men. Nearly 60 years ago, 60 years ago, Dr. King shared his dream 
called the United States to account, called on the country's moral conscience and lifted up the gap between a radically inclusive multiracial democracy and the current farce of the so-called land of the free. On January 6th of this year on the National Mall, on the other end, across from the Lincoln Memorial, some of the dreamers, as ta Coates calls them, those who believe that whiteness is superior, those who were fed by lies from the president and his enablers, those who came armed with weapons and conspiracy theories, those enraged by eight years of a black president, those who swept Trump into power four years ago, and those who were called by Trump to the National Mall. Many of them violently stormed the Capitol, seeking to interrupt and overturn a fair and free election and to kill those who opposed the Electoral College certification. This is the awful fruit of white supremacy, of the lie, of the dreamers, as ta Coates calls them. One national mall, two very different dreams on each end of that national mall. The dream of Dr. King was a dream of a racially just country, a dream that went on to call for demilitarization and to include a poor people's campaign, a campaign that centered the dignity of working class people that called for a living wage and affordable housing and the, the fruits of the country they were working so hard, laboring so hard in. On the other end of the mall, a week and a half ago, was the dream of the dreamers, a dream based on innocence, so-called innocence and denial and lies. This is who we are as a country. This is who we are. So the question for us this morning might be this, how can First Universalist, how can our faith community, drawing on the spiritual resources we have as Unitarian Universalists, actually work to change and to repair this country? What is the work we can do to begin in our sphere of influence to change and heal and repair the harm that has happened and is happening in this country? How can we work? What is the work we can do to dismantle the lies of white supremacy culture and help create the beloved community? What is it? What practices? What is in our sphere of influence to do as a faith community? And so this morning, I want to share with you what I think this can look like and to say that this is at its core, deeply spiritual work. To pretend otherwise, I think is a grave mistake. The healing work is spiritual work. And what I mean when I say it is spiritual work is that the essence of any spiritual life or spiritual practice, it begins, it rests with, it rests with, it centers around the practice of paying attention, of really paying attention, paying attention to the breath, which is why I'm so grateful when we begin these services and we pray, we actually just take some time to breathe, to notice what it's like to be in this body, these bodies breathing 
to notice that, to pay attention to the in-breath and the out-breath, to pay attention to the thoughts that come and go, to see, oh, I, I think that's a real story, and then to see it as a thought and to let it go. I love the practice of paying attention to where love is calling us next in our lives. Even when love is calling us to a hard place or a difficult place or a place we'd rather not go, but we listen and we pay attention and we discern that that is in fact where we need to go. It is a spiritual practice to pay attention to the stories and the experiences of those around you, of those different from you, of those in your community. Paying attention to beauty, to human beings and lives and stories, that is the foundation of a meaningful spiritual life. And for a moment right now, I wanna to speak to the black and indigenous and people of color in our congregation. I know that in so many ways, you already do this practice on a daily basis, this practice of paying attention. Because of the white supremacy culture and structures we are in so often for your very survival, you are forced to pay exquisite attention, to pay attention to the emotions and the responses and the reactions of white people. Because emotionally upset or riled up or scared white people are dangerous. They can act out, they can speak harmfully, they can call the police, they can inflict violence. You are forced to teach your children so often what to do if they are pulled over, to pay attention to every word from the police officer, not to move suddenly or to appear dangerous. Black and indigenous and people of color, you already pay attention and understand white people and their emotions and their stories and their history better than white people do themselves. And I also want to say to the Black and Indigenous and people of color in this congregation that there are spiritual practices of attentiveness that you can engage in and deepen, but centering white emotional needs and white comfort is not one of them. So I want to suggest this morning to the white folks in the congregation that in order to begin to end the nightmare of white supremacy culture, we must pay attention to the stories and the feedback from the people most impacted by the violence and harm of the dominant system and structures of our country. The voices of those most impacted should be at the center of our awareness and our attention and our consciousness as a congregation. This is a practice we are building and cultivating. And we need to let go, I need to let go, we need to let go, the white folks, of some of the defensiveness we feel when we hear those voices and those stories and those experiences, when they honestly share with us, when they know there may be a cost and share anyway. And I will speak more personally now for just a moment and say that a sense of innocence, my own innocence, my own sense of I am not a racist, that can be the biggest barrier to truly hearing what I need to hear from those most impacted. Whether it's because of an impact I've had on them or an impact this institution, this church has had on them, it is often innocence that prevents me from truly hearing what needs to be heard. Let me give you an example. This is not from First Universalist, but it's within Unitarian Universalism and relevant to this conversation. 
every year ministers gather for what we call ministry days. This happens before the Unitarian Universalist General Assembly. At ministry days, there is a, tr a tradition of the annual 2550 service, which gives a platform to ministers who have served for 25 and 50 years, respectively, in Unitarian Universalism. And it invites these ministers who have served for 25 and 50 years to reflect on what they've observed and learned over the course of their ministry, how they have been shaped and changed in their ministry. Recently, colleagues of color and others asked the Ministers Association to reconsider this practice because it is most often white ministers who are able to enter and to maintain tenure in Unitarian Universalist communities and congregations. And so by default, it is almost exclusively white people who speak at the 2550 service. So this proposal to reconsider this practice it is about finding new ways to hear the voices of ministers who serve Unitarian Universalism. It is recognizing that someone who has served for five years may have incredible insight. And someone who has served for one year in conversation with someone who has served for 10 years may have incredible wisdom to share. Listening to this feedback, to this proposal for change and taking it seriously matters because the current structure is harmful. It perpetuates a system of white supremacy culture. So when these colleagues share this feedback, it matters that it is put at the center of the conversation and really taken in, really heard and really responded to. And even in this example, innocence can prevent folks from hearing what needs to be heard. Innocence that might look like, hey, well, we're not racist. This, this is how we've always done it. There are people who are about to celebrate 50 years and we can't change things up, that wouldn't be right. Instead of a posture of, thank you for this feedback, let's think together how we can make this a more just structure and system. And I wanna be really clear, almost confessional this morning with you, I am not perfect at this practice of centering those voices and experiences and feedback. I am not perfect at this practice and it is a growing edge for me. And I know I have no doubt harmed colleagues of color and harmed congregants of color by not fully hearing the feedback they have shared with me, the observations they have offered me, by not fully centering that and letting that in when they have taken that risk to do that. I'm sorry for harm I have caused. And as one of the spiritual leaders of this church, I'm committed to this practice of centering the stories and experiences of those most impacted by the dominant culture. And I want to say clearly this morning that this is our commitment as a church to place in the center the voices and the stories and experiences of those most impacted and harmed by supremacy culture, by police violence and brutality, by racism, by poverty, by environmental racism, by ableism, by sexism, to respond, to listen, to center, and to respond and make changes based on what we're hearing. This is what love looks like in action. This is what hope looks like in action. It is an active practice of listening, of paying attention, of centering, and then making changes based on what is heard and learned and taken in. The gulf between King's dream and the nightmare still woven into the fabric of our country, it is vast, it is a vast 
gulf. But that does not mean that things cannot change. So I wanna say again to the white folks, our attention, our commitment, and the centering we practice here in our own lives, in our own circles and communities and in this faith community, those practices matter more now than they ever have. So let us be about this work. Let us be about dismantling what hurts and harms and kills. And let us be about building the beloved community where each and every person and each and every voice and each and every beautiful expression of humanity is welcomed and seen, embraced and called in. Let us be about that work. Let us be about building beloved community. May it be so, and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text FIRSTUNIV, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.